0: Welcome to the heart of sports. Jeff and Jason are taking some time this week to continue celebrating that big Eagles win over Dallas and Thanksgiving with their families. But here's an interview they conducted with the man that discovered CTE. And that was a character portrayed by Will Smith in the movie concussion, Dr. Bene Omalu. This wide-ranging interview touches on everything from discovering CTE and learning about traumatic brain injuries to the pushback he received from the medical community and the NFL along the way to the movie Concussion, which was based on his story, and head injuries in youth sports, among other things.
1: Good afternoon. Uh, Today we have with us Dr. Bennett Omalu. Dr. Omalu, for people that do not know, is a neuropathologist, forensic and clinical pathologist, among other expertise. He's currently the chief medical examiner of the San Joaquin County in California. He's formerly a forensic pathologist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he is the doctor who discovered and coined the term CTE and was subject of the movie Concussion. He was also co-founder of Talmark, the Better Brain Diagnostics. And uh, I'm glad to say I have just
2: finished the book that you were. Oh, the wow, author. really? Yep. He's not even a fast reader, doctor. Yes, and he I... read the whole thing in one night. Doctor, I, I will. I, I, I literally stayed up all
1: night the other night. You're... you're uh, publicist was nice enough to forward us a copy of the book, Uh. and the book for everybody that's listening, the book is called Truth Doesn't Have a Side, My Alarming Discovery About the Danger of Contact Sports, and I recommend to everybody highly to read this book, not just because, by the way, of the story of concussion and your discovery, but doctor, the story of your life and your family, even before you came to America, is incredibly inspiring, and everybody should try to read this book for that. That reason too
3: yeah thank you so much thank you for having me and uh, truth doesn't have a side honestly I it took me almost one year to share my journey of faith and uh, my journey of science to let people know that come what may no matter where you may be in life what you're doing what you're struggling with it's going to be okay be patient with yourself be patient with God and be patient with society H will be okay. The will always prevail.
2: And, and it was certainly fascinating to learn more about you as we prepped for the interview. Uh, you know, obviously, most people know you because of Will Smith's portrayal of you in the movie Concussion. But for those who haven't seen the movie, can you tell us about your work and interest in brain injuries and, and how that began in terms of the discovery of CTE for you?
3: Well, that began by serendipity, like I said in the book. Uh, I never wanted to be a physician.
2: (laughs) You you (laughs) just got lucky that way.
3: (laughs) I wanted to be a pilot. I became a physician because of um, confirmations to the, you know, traditions of society. My parents wanted me to study medicine. Um, I had problems. Uh, I struggled with depression, and low self-esteem. But I kept on keeping on. At some point, I dropped out of medical school. But I finished. So when I finished, I decided to study forensic pathologies because it was far removed from traditional clinical medicine as much as possible. So that was what brought me into forensic pathology. And while I was completing forensic pathology fellowship, I discovered the brain in terms of discovering the... I personally discovered the intrigue of the brain, that the brain was uh, a very complex organ. And I did not know so much about the brain, so I decided to study the brain and do a fellowship in neuropathology. So I finished my fellowship in neuropathology in uh, June of 2002. So I began work as a forensic pathologist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, then I was single. Uh, I was young and inexperienced professionally. I still struggled with depression and low self-esteem, so I did not have a life. And The only social life I had was Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. I could go to a nearby nightclub, drink Henneken, stand by the... Loudspeakers and um, bang my head to the rhythm of the music.
2: <laughs> you might have found Jeff out home. there. He was out there at law school at the time in Pittsburgh. You were both looking for uh, for a wife, right, Jeff?
1: That's right, uh, do- Doctor. We have something in common. Uh, we both met our wives in Pittsburgh.
2: There you oh, go. really? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
3: So there was this uh, cold Friday evening in Pittsburgh in September of two thousand and two. So I did what I always did, went to a club, came back late as usual, Um, woke up late Saturday morning. I had to go to work because I I did most of the weekends and public holidays in the office. I was the most junior pathologist and the only single pathologist. So I had to go to work that Saturday. I turned on the television, fixed myself a cup of coffee. um, But that morning on television in most of the channels, all the men and women were talking about this great football player who had just died. His name was Mike Webster. But they talked about him not in uh, glorious terms, but in very derogatory, dismissive manners. And they spoke about him in the context of other retired football players. that They did not do so well on the field of uh, life as they did on the field of football that they did not handle the obscurity of retirement very well, that they struggled with um, giving up the fame of playing football, they did not manage their money well, blah, 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 blah. As a forensic pathologist, somebody who studies dead people and speaks on behalf of dead people, I was offended by what I was hearing, so I paid close attention to find out why They were saying what they were saying about him. And I noticed he played football. I did not grow up in America. I came to America when I was 26 years old. However, I saw football once in a while on satellite TV growing up in Africa. And I thought it was a game where people dressed up like extraterrestrials with big fat (laughs) heads, broad padded shoulders and tiny legs running around the field and intentionally slamming themselves into one another. It was called football, but I did not see anybody kicking the ball, rather they threw the ball to one another. But I wondered, even as a child, why they had to wear a helmet playing a game that if it was a game, I wouldn't wear a helmet. So that day, I wondered, okay, if this guy behaved the way these people are saying he behaved, couldn't he be suffering from dementia pugilistic that boxers suffer from? Well, I uh, thought about it, but well, he wasn't a boxer. And dementia pugilistica in those days had only been described in boxers. And I thought quickly, medical school, I never came across the terminology dementia footballistica for football players. So, well, I had to go to work, life is unfair, poor guy, rest in peace. I sped off to work, lo and behold, I'm getting to work, guess who was on my autopsy table? Mike Webster.
2: And so, was that your first first exposure to the brain of an NFL player, where you sort of started to make that connection? In yes. Your mind? Yes.
3: I had no reason to do Mike Webster's autopsy. We knew why he died. He had a massive heart attack. Okay. I opened up his skull. I was expecting his brain to look mangled and shriveled, but guess what? His brain appeared normal. I was shocked There was a mismatch but like I always do with all my patients I talk to them I introduce myself to them and when I introduce myself to Mike Webster I said to him Mike there is nothing wrong with you as a person I think you're suffering from a disease okay caused by the repeated blows because I believe if he played this game for 15, 17 years, he must have suffered thousands. I calculated at least 200,000 blows to his head that he had some type of brain damage. So I told him I would use all my education and knowledge to get to the truth, because there is only one truth does not have a side.
2: And and so, in your search for the truth, not only was it Mike, but there were lots of players that you came across along the way. Here in Philadelphia, Andre Waters um, was an eagle that was beloved, and we saw in your book that he stopped counting after his 15th concussion. I saw you say that his brain had degenerated in a New York Times story to have characteristics of an 85-year-old with early-stage Alzheimer's. Can- yes.
3: He was, and I believe he was less than 50 years old. After I saw the Mike Webster case there and then, having reviewed the literature as far back as 400 B.C., to Hippocrates. Remember, Hippocrates was the one who identified and described concussions. He called them commercial cerebri. Centuries of scientific work. If a human being plays a game like football and his head is exposed to thousands of blows, there is a 100% risk exposure to permanent brain damage. So I knew in 2002 that every professional football player would have CTE or some degree of brain damage with or without CTE because CTE is not the only type of brain damage you suffer from following brain trauma. So I started searching for, or for the brains of retired football players. I actually traveled around the country speaking to the families. Andrew Waters was the third case I got. Why? Uh, What do you mean? Why?
2: Yeah, how did you come across Andre Didn't Waters? he die?
3: You know, these things, unfortunately, you have to wait for them to die. I couldn't go and kill football players <laughs> to get their brains.
2: So so when he passed away, did his family contact you because they had questions? Yes,
3: his family had contacted uh, some other individual who brought it to my attention. Or rather, some other individual reached out to the family. Gotcha. I brought it to your attention because the second case, Terry Long was about uh, one year after the Mike Webster case was published. Okay, so I got his case, then after that, I got the fourth one, after that, I got the fifth one. In fact, at some point, I was the only physician in the world describing these diseases and that was when other doctors started insinuating that I was practicing African food medicine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Weaver, we obviously know that's not the case. And before, before we get to that, and also I know Jason wants to ask a little bit more about your interactions with the families of, of the people who suffered from CTE. Uh, one of the things I found interesting in not only the movie, but also your book is, uh, I know people that have that have worked in the the Pittsburgh coroner's office, last time I checked, they weren't getting paid $2 million a year. And, and yes. when Mike Webster was diagnosed, with, or, or you determined that he died from a cardiac arrest, at that point, you decided on your own, is my understanding, to pay for the autopsy and, and the tests on Mike Webster's
3: brain. But well, not the autopsy. What happened was after the autopsy, I had a cause of death. He died from a massive heart attack. But I saved his brain. Um, I had, by the guidelines and protocols of the office, I should not have saved his brain. But I saved his brain. So I went to my boss, the world acclaimed forensic pathologist, Doctor Cyril Wet. Dr. Cyril Wecht, Wecht, in my opinion, is one of the most intelligent people on earth. An extremely brilliant man. So, given his brilliance, he recognized the intellectual value of what I was doing, because he asked me, what are you looking for, like in the movie? I said, I did not know, just that something is amiss here. So he said, well, that... He wouldn't stop me from examining the brain. I could examine it to fulfill my intellectual curiosity, but the office wasn't going to pay for it because we did not have money. So I said, okay, that I would pay for it. But I remember, luckily, I was single. I had no children. I was making relatively good money as a doctor, and I had no life. I was struggling with depression. Mike Webster's brain gave me a life.
2: (laughs) So you actually you dedicated yourself not only your time that you were working but financially, as Jeff said, to to make sure that this could be paid for to to be able to pursue your research.
3: Yes, and even all my travels, I traveled across the country interviewing the family members. I I paid with my own money. Um, Even after I published the Mike Webster case, gave it the name CTE, the NFL came after me, and fellow doctors, which is very amazing, including doctors who are working on CTE today, they discredited me, they marginalized me, ostracized me, ridiculed me. And, um, what was some of the ridicule? Be, what was sorry. some of
2: the ridicule that you were exposed to? I, I saw you talk a little bit about it. It so, seemed pretty I'm
3: intense. I, I would say was xenophobic. Mm-hmm. That I was a no-name doctor. That how demi. Claim that I discovered CTE. Who do I think I am? I'm misrepresenting the facts. That uh, my Webster is not the first case. Um, that I'm, I'm making conclusions that are not supported by science. I was not, for example, the National Institute of Health. After I published my papers, set up a committee. To determine the diagnostic criteria for CTE, which was I was the first to describe it, and they did not invite me. <laughs> they did not. I mean, what, was not it jealousy provenance.
2: that that you were not invited, or uh, a fear of acknowledging that what you were saying was really going on? Why do you think that you were excluded and treated so poorly? Was it just that you were a threat to people?
3: To be honest with you, I I do not know, but I've spoken, I didn't grow up in this country. Um, so I've spoken to so many people trying to understand what I was going through. And I'll be very sincere with you, I'll tell you what the reasons people have given me. One, this was a very intelligent lawyer, a very successful attorney that said this to me, he said, well, Bennett, there is an ugly historical past or historical narrative of America in terms of race relations, that there is a historical precedent in America whereby when black people discover things, white people step in, and take credit for it.
2: And so you got that from from people. That was sort of the indication you were given as to to why you it, one of the reasons you may not have been included. Yeah,
3: people gave me different. Ways. This is this was one of the reasons. And the person said to me, "The problem I have is one I didn't grow up in this country. Then I'm from Africa, and in fact." Somebody said to me, "Look, I'm from uh, I'm from Nigeria. What is Nigeria known for? Nigerians are not known for the unique, uh, original, creative thinking." Somebody said that to me. I'm not kidding. Well, but okay, it,
1: but doctor, 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 didn't you also? I mean, Cyril Wecht is is a world renowned uh, pathologist himself. He he was standing behind you during this. Did that? Didn't didn't you and he find that unusual,
3: Doctor Weg? To be honest with you, is a good man. In fact, I was working under Doctor Weg because no other person employed me. Mm -hmm. So Doctor Weg said to me, "Look, Bennett, you're such an intelligent man that I don't want your intelligence to be wasted." Can you come and work with me? Mm-hmm. We may not pay you much in the office, but look, it is a job. At least it gives you a platform to launch yourself. Dr. Weck did that for me. In fact, I was able to uh, discover CTE in my Webster's brain because of Dr. Weck. Right. Because if I had another boss that wasn't as altruistic, As Dr. Wecht, he wouldn't have allowed me to examine that brain, you know, so like I said in the book, there is always an angel at some point in your life. Dr. Wecht was that angel for me. And another thing, another reason people gave me it, look, I'm not an established name. I was just three months outside my training. So, like, we have it in every aspect of human behavior, conformational thinking and conformational behavior. Because I was not an established name, I wasn't even American. And I came up with this highly disruptive concept that the establishment felt threatened by me.
1: Yeah, and, and Doctor, th- that being said, we also, you know, I was reading your book and there was a there was one
2: quote in here that I
1: kind of would like
2: to read. Jeff was uh, very bothered when he saw this in your book and he actually texted a screenshot of the text to me so that I would believe that what he is reading is accurate. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, it,
4: it,
1: it was in the section on the NFL equals Big, big Tobacco. That's the, the title of the section that you had. And And you said, and I'm quoting here, in their seventh paper published in January 2005, the NFL put forth questionable data and concluded that when a professional football player suffers a concussion, which in their opinion is the mildest form of brain injury, the concussed player should be returned to play the same day he suffered his concussion. They further concluded that when a concussed football player is returned to the play the same day or in the same game in which he suffered a concussion, his clinical outcomes are better and he has less risk of permanent brain damage than a player who is taken out of the game completely following a concussion. When, when I read that, I literally, I, t- I turned to my family and said, how can that be? And then I texted Jason Doctor, when you, when you saw that quote, as somebody who ha- had been working on this and trying to help the players, what was your reaction to that?
3: You know, in fact, it's even worse. Uh, that same paper which I referenced, I gave the, the uh, bibliography section. They said that the same standards should be applied to college and
2: high school football. I think that's actually what got Jeff so much. Is Jeff has coached at the youth levels and and, and seeing the implications of that yeah. really hit home for him.
3: Anybody who doesn't believe it should go and get the paper and read. I put I quite quite put the reference. <laughs> it, it, so what it, it, happened was when remember I was traveling around the country spending my own money meeting these players behind the scene, okay? In fact, uh, Fred McNeil's wife would tell you that when she called me to tell me about her husband, that I was not the one telling her the symptoms her husband was suffering from, the same symptoms she was calling me to tell me about. And she asked me, how do you know? I said, because I've seen too many of it. These players were suffering in obscurity and in silence. And society said to them to shut up, that you're not tough enough, that you, for, to play football you need to be tough, that culture of masochism. We treated these human beings as if they were not human beings, but animals, gladiators. We used them, they entertained us, then they retired, we dumped them. That was what I saw. And what happened then was there was this reaction in me, because I'm a Christian. I discovered Christianity through my science of studying death. And my faith as a Christian, the scripture tells us that we all as human beings are one body, one spirit, one hope, one joy, bound together by peace okay that we all are the images of one another if i look at you i see myself in you and whatever we do even to the least of us we do for all of us so i said how could this be happening in america the country that i loved so much like will smith said in the movie concussion that as a child growing up I believed heaven was here and heaven was immediately beneath and America was immediately beneath heaven a place that was closest to what God wants us to be as his sons and daughters and I said no way this could not be happening to America but my faith couldn't let me to keep quiet
2: so when you I talk... just
3: couldn't do that to myself. That would have been torture for me.
2: When you talk about how we treat each other, playing it forward, do you think the NFL is doing enough now for its players as they try to change? What are your feelings on on what's currently going on?
3: Okay, what I'll tell you next, please. I don't want anybody to faint. Uh, uh, <laughs> if you're standing, sit down.
2: <laughs> okay.
3: I have never made this about the NFL. I never imagined that the NFL would do anything to protect players. I'll tell you why. The NFL is a corporation. I'm a free market person. I have an MBA from Tepper School of Business, Carnegie Mellon University, one of the best business schools in the world. This is the free capital economy, the free market economy. The NFL is a corporation. What do corporations do? The objective of a corporation is to make money, profits. A corporation provides a product or a service. The product the NFL provides is football. The service they provide is entertainment. The NFL is not in the business of healthcare. The NFL is not in the business of medical research. So I don't expect the NFL to provide health care or health monitoring to their players. No, that is not what they do. And I want the NFL to be a very successful corporation, to be honest with you. And that was why I wrote my book. Let's not make this about the NFL. Let's make this about ourselves, about the consumers, about parents, and about children. And that is why I believe, I spent almost one year to write this book. I believe each and every parent must pick this book to ask, and ask, read, read the book, and ask himself or herself this question. Do I love football more than I love my child? And, and that is what my story would help you answer, to make it easier for you.
1: It, that Doctor, that's a, that's an incredibly important question. That's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show, and we're going to get to that shortly. Um, just finishing up with professional sports, though, it's interesting that that you find it um, the free market to be something that controls, and, and that despite all of this, that you're not anti-professional sports or contact sports. But when we see something, you may not follow this, but the NFL had its its Hall of Fame induction last week, and Jerry Jones, who is the owner of the Cowboys, is somebody that you cite in your book. Because after a hearing where an NFL official acknowledged that there was a link between concussions or CTE and football, um, Jerry Jones was cited in the Washington Post as saying that that was absurd, um, that there was no data that in any way created that knowledge. Well, what we know now, not only from your research, but within the last couple of weeks, a study has come out. Uh, showing the brains of over over 100 NF, ex-NFL players um, and showing the, the vast number of them, if not all of them, having some form of CTE. How do you feel about Jerry Jones, somebody who owns a team and is responsible for players, making such comments? Okay.
3: Thank you for asking there. My advice to the NFL and to the NFL owners is to give them a case study in business school, that of Tesla, Elon Musk. In business, it is in your self-interest, it is in your sustainability interest and even your profitability interest to align yourself to the truth. There is only one truth. Like I said in my book, truth doesn't have a side. There's no alternative truth. There are no alternative facts. Truth does not have a perspective or a perspective. And come what may, it may take a long time to come. The truth will always prevail. Elon Musk, when he wanted to start a battery-powered car, he was told he couldn't do it. Some people even laughed at him. But Elon Musk aligned himself to the truth that there was global warming. He did not create his own alternative truth. I drove a Mercedes Benz. Two weeks ago, I ordered a Tesla.
1: Good luck. You'll be waiting a while.
3: (laughs) Because personally, I am embracing the truth. I cannot continue to contribute to global warming. And guess what I was told at Tesla? They are the greatest number of their customers who are coming to buy Tesla and Mercedes-Benz owners, followed by BMW and Volvo. What happened? Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, and other car brands refused to align themselves on the side of the truth. And guess what? Society left them behind. So for the NFL, it is in their interest to align themselves to the side of the truth, or on the side of the truth.
4: Otherwise,
3: as time goes on, they would become like Kodak and Blockbuster. It's as simple as that. So you can continue to deny the truth. It's okay. But I guarantee you, in another generation or less, Football will become insignificant because society will leave football behind. The consumer is not a fool. The NFL is extremely successful, and I'm very happy for them and excited for them because they have done a very good job in marketing and branding themselves to make Americans believe that football is America's identity. The Super Bowl is not a a bigger holiday as uh, Independence Day. But the problem is success begets arrogance. Success gives you a false sense, or may give you a false sense of who you may be, or an exaggerated sense of importance.
2: Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your own success, Doctor. Uh, That's absolutely fascinating to hear. And obviously the the thing that really raised your profile to another level here, separate from the research community, is the movie, uh, Concussion. How did you feel about Will Smith playing you as a character on the big screen? And did he get you right? Well, well, you
3: know, I've never made this about myself. And if you notice, I've said repeatedly that I wish I never met Mike Webster Because when I was coming to America, I was coming to live a very simple life, raise a family, die a simple death Mike Webster robbed robbed me of my aspirations Okay This has never been about me rather this has been about all of us. I see myself as a low lowly handmade for humanity Okay, in fact Will Smith did not want to do that movie. He has said that. He did not want to do the movie.
2: I saw him say that. He was concerned by it.
3: But after he read the script, as God will have it, he requested to meet me, to have dinner with me, maybe, you know, just to give me his respect. So... I was flown down to Bel Air, Beverly Hills, to meet at the Bel Air Hotel with Will Smith, his uh, brother in law, Giannina Scott, and Peter Landensman, the director, okay, and the scriptwriter. So it was meant to be a one hour dinner. We went to the Bel Air Hotel, very intimidating environment. I was so intimidated. But my mind kept on telling me, be yourself, Bennett. So st- uh, Will Smith came, he came, he was about 30 minutes late, we started dinner, he met me, he sat next to me, dinner should have lasted for one hour, we started around 7.30, by 1 a.m., we were still talking. And Will Smith was asking me questions why I did what I did. And he saw my transparency, my sincerity, and in fact he said it, he wrote it forward for me, that Bennett is naive but naive in a good way. Very sincere. Okay? And I think we all have succeeded. I don't want this to be about me as an individual. I want this to be about society. Because one person typically can sow the seed and the seed will germinate.
2: Well, and you've obviously been the catalyst to that seed growing. In the past, I've heard you say that Hollywood itself is a powerful agent of change. How do you believe that that seed has grown since the movie and how has that changed the dialogue on CTE and brain injuries itself?
3: There's no question about it. The movie made an impact. In fact, I call it the Will Smith Effect. W S E. I'm, I'm sitting that here movie... with a,
2: an attorney that does trademark work. If you want to work on, <laughs> on getting that for yourself, we'll talk afterwards.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that movie, that movie, what what we couldn't do in 15 years, that movie did in one year. That movie is an extremely successful movie because what that movie did, it changed the discourse. And it permeated, it made the the, the the subject permeate every fabric of society, right from the congress to the student in first grade in elementary school. So it brought that to it brought that into America's consciousness. And finally people began to discuss it openly. So I give the movie so much credit. In fact, I think the movie has been very successful, not or Do you believe? Because without the movie, I may not have been able to write this book.
2: Do you believe that the movie has put too much of a focus on CTE and not the other brain injuries or traumatic injuries that can occur?
3: I, I, I wouldn't blame the movie for that. I would okay. blame doctors, and I'll tell you why. You know, there, there is this confirmational disposition we as a society have. So what I think happened, many doctors out there saw my narrative and believed that my narrative was essentially launched by CTE and they began to regenerate that same narrative for themselves.
2: So where you, your goal was not to make it about yourself, but to make it about the larger issue of, of the health and the individuals, you believe that some doctors tried to, to take it and make a name for themselves off of this disease?
3: Yes, doctors and organizations and institutions. So what that has led us to is some type of indirect obsession with CTE. But CTE is just one Disease in a broad spectrum of diseases caused by brain damage from trauma. In fact, we see more types of brain damage outside CTE. Am I making sense?
2: Yes. Actually, in fact, uh, when Jeff follows up after this, he's going to go into youth sports and, and ask you about that, about the injuries that you see. I mean, obviously, the focus is on football, but... It it seemed from what I learned uh, researching you was, for you it wasn't about a sport. It was about an action. It was about the action right. of the trauma to the brain, and it didn't matter the medium that it was occurring, which sport it was. You were trying to deal with that trauma aspect and the long term repercussions. If I understood it.
3: Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Because sometimes some detractors would tell Molly's attacking football. No, that is not true the issue is, uh, is that in every human activity whereby the human head is exposed to repeated blows, there is a 100% risk exposure to brain damage with or without CTD. So for football, because when we play football, blows to the head is inherent to each and every play in football, football exposes the human head to repeated blows of the head. This is not about concussions, by the way. You can suffer brain damage without ever suffering one single concussion, like my Webster. My Webster never suffered any documented concussion.
1: And doc, Dr. Amal, that is an important point that I don't Want people to glance over the re- the reason being I have been involved with youth sports for a long time, and and head injuries is something that only recently are we we focusing on, but but I've talked to parents uh, of young children kids that are anywhere from eight to to fifteen. And one of the things that I have heard repeatedly from parents is while they're now cognizant of CTE and they're now cognizant of concussion and concussion protocol, parents seem to think or have taken the position that as long as their son or their daughter doesn't suffer a concussion, isn't diagnosed with a concussion, that everything is okay. And and I think that's it's one of the things that Jason and I learned from your book. And we wanted you to talk a little bit more because youth sports is what is important, at least for us. If you, When you're an adult, as you said in your book, when you're an adult, you can make your own decisions. When you're, yes. you're a child, somebody else is making those decisions for you. And in order to make a good decision, you, you have to, as you say, tell the truth, and and you have to understand it. And there's nobody better to help understand that than you, if you could explain the difference to the parents that may be listening. Okay.
3: The issue really is uh, an an anatomic deficiency in our bodies, unfortunately. And I think as a Christian, God may have made it that way. God created us to be intellectual animals, not physical animals. God created us to think And the human brain, which is made up of about 60 to 80 percent water and has about 200 billion cells, the human brain floats freely inside the human skull. And in fact, there are spaces inside the human brain that look like balloons. We call them the ventricles that give the brain some brill- brilliancy to float like a balloon inside your skull. So whenever you have a blow to your head or a sudden acceleration, deceleration, your brain bounces around inside your skull and around the midline to suffer acceleration, deceleration, shearing injuries. That may not manifest as a concussion. We call them sub concussions. And that is a type of brain damage. If I examine the brain on a microscopic level, it is brain damage. Your brain is microscopically damaged. So you think about it in one game of football, your son's or daughter's head may be exposed to. Let's say 50 hits. Then he plays for one season, from 50, it goes to hundreds. He plays for several years, it goes to thousands. This is the brain of a human being. The brain does not have any reasonable capacity to regenerate or rejuvenate itself. Regenerate or rejuvenate itself. It is a post mitotic. Organ, it's not like the liver. If you take out one quarter of your liver, it regrows. But I've done an autopsy on somebody who's um, who had it, who had half of his liver removed. He died many many years later. I didn't even see any evidence that half of his liver was ever removed. Okay, but the brain does not have that capacity.
1: So, so- if you suffer a
3: concussion, uh, multiple subconcussions. When you're five years old, if you live to be 70, I will show you evidence of those sub concussions in your brain if I examine your brain. So you can brain.
2: see the concussions from when a five year old got them at 70 years old? Yes. yes. Wow.
3: And, 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 and what happens, it's um, the, the most severe and the most forceful each impact and the more repeated the blows are, the greater the likelihood you suffer brain damage and the greater the severity of the brain damage. But there is a certain threshold the brain reaches. We do not know what that threshold is. In some people it could be just one major blow, in some it could be multiple, in some people it could be several.
1: So if that, Doctor, if that happens... Um, at what point would you recommend that kids get involved in contact sports? We know that that for children, your brain's not fully developed yet, and it doesn't fully develop until adulthood. And I, at, 18 years old. And now, does that apply to, not, you know, we've talked about football, but I want to be clear to everybody that's listening that this isn't about football, at least as I understand it. This is any contact sport you're talking about, you're talking about ice hockey, lacrosse, anything that involves any type of contact head trauma, right?
3: These are the high-impact, high-contact sports whereby blows to the head is inherent to the play, meaning you cannot take the head out of the game. For example, you cannot take the head out of football. You cannot take the head out of ice hockey. You cannot take the head out of rugby. You cannot take the head out of boxing. You cannot take the head out of mixed martial arts. You cannot take the head out of wrestling.
2: And so is your argument not to do it or to be aware of the risks if you're going to?
3: Uh, no, my argument is, not really my argument, my position so not, has not always an been.
2: Yeah, it's your position.
3: My position has always been and remains that no child under the age of 18 in America today she play the high impact, high contact sports and the big six are American football, ice hockey, mixed martial arts, rugby, boxing and wrestling.
2: And so what do you say no. to, what do you say to people who say that they recognize the risks, but you are taking it too far. There are parents who continue to, to have their children participate in these sports, even though these headlines are out there. Um, do you accept the decision that they make, or do you try to make them more aware that the truth that you're aware of, that you believe that they're they're not paying attention to?
3: I, I have two answers to answer, that. The first answer is there are different types of sports. These sports are not the only sports we have. <laughs> Children should play the non contact sports. And in non contact sports like I said in my book, if you visit the International Olympics Committee website, there are so many of them. But quickly I could give you a rundown. There's track and field, there's swimming, there is table tennis, lawn tennis, volleyball, bad maintain, basketball. Now, in these games, you can still have accidental injury. In the management of risk, what you do is you mitigate exposure to the risk, and you regulate the activities to minimize accidental injuries as much as you could. But in the high-impact, high-contact sports, you cannot make them safe. So children should engage only in the non-contact sports, because the non-contact sports will give your child everything football or ice hockey would give your child, but give your child even more. While football and ice hockey would damage your child's intelligence and rob your child of his mind. The non-compact sports will actually enhance your child's intelligence in addition to providing your child physical training and physical education.
2: So the, the dilemma as adults for us when we want to watch professionals, people over 18 that choose to play these sports and watch the NFL and watch other sports that are contact sports, should we as a fan feel guilty that they made this decision while we're watching this to entertain us? How how do you advise people when it comes to that, when adults have made the decision to continue? Well, to... you
3: know, that, uh, my best not to be judgmental of anybody who has reached the age of consent. Um, You're afraid to do whatever you want to do, but in, in, in the legal system, when you aid or abet a bad behavior, you're culpable. Okay, but this is legalistic, and also from a Christian perspective, do unto others what you want to be done unto yourself. If somebody is on the field receiving brain damage and you are cheering, that is the question we need to ask ourselves, is that a Christian thing to do? But it's always been my standard not to judge adults as long as they have an educated and informed consent. Adults are free to do whatever they want to do. But for children, for children... As a society, as we have done historically, whenever we identify a potentially harmful factor, we protect the children from those factors. There was a time children smoked. But as soon as we identified smoking as a potentially harmful factor, we protected children from it. And in fact, we banned children from smoking. If you give a child a stick of cigarette, that is child abuse there was a time children drank alcohol in fact in some cultures and some countries children drink alcohol but not in America because a glass of cognac no matter how fine that cognac could be has a potential to damage your child's brain we prevent our children from drinking alcohol now listen to this if a child comes to you and asks you for a stick of cigarette oh mommy 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 I want to smoke a stick of Marlboro of course, you tell him no, but that same 10-year-old child comes to you, mommy, mummy, mummy, I want to play football. You place a helmet on his head and send him out to a field to play football, receive subconcussions and concussions, which is more dangerous. A stick of cigarette or a concussion of the brain. Of course, a concussion of the brain. But as a society, we continue to intentionally expose children to the risk of permanent brain damage. And everybody is keeping quiet. As a physician, I have to attend every two years a class in child abuse. And I'm mandated by law to report every event of child abuse I witness. I must report it to the Child Protective Services. What is child abuse? It is defined as the intentional or unintentional exposure of a child to the risk of injury. That injury does not have to occur. For example, if I were to leave my seven-year-old son home alone and I go clubbing and my neighbor notices and he calls the cops, I would be warned. I do it second, third time, I could lose custody of that child. Meanwhile, no injury has occurred on that child. But every day in America, we intentionally send children out to suffer subconcussions and concussions. But because of conformational intelligence of society, everybody's keeping quiet. There are economic impacts. This is not just about health. The fertility rate of the developed world is dropping. We are having less children. Our children are becoming more precious commodities. In the global marketplace and in the global economy, we are subjecting a good proportion of our children to the risk of brain damage in sports. When these children become adults, they are more likely to be less competitive than children from other parts of the world. Would that place us in a position to lose our competitive edge? And he, and doctor, yeah.
1: doctor, that that's exactly why we wanted to have you on the show. It, is that it's important for parents to have all the information. Um, I wish we could have you on for two, three more hours if we had the time. <laughs> I might never
2: watch TV again or go near a sports field, but I enjoy having you on. <laughs> and, and we hope that that, that
1: uh, you will come back on our show sometime. Um, thank you again for, for giving us this much time, and, and uh, we we wish you the best of luck with your new book.
3: Yeah, thank you. I believe every part should buy my book. It will help them answer this question. Do you love football more than you love your child?
2: Well, we truly appreciate the time you gave us. You have a wonderful day, doctor, and best of luck with the book. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Let me tell you, buying or selling a home is a life-changing decision. Whether you're looking for your first home or searching for your forever home, Ann Coons is the realtor you need. In fact, she helped my wife and I settle into our forever home. With over 30 years helping satisfied clients buy and sell homes in the Delaware Valley, Ann Coons will give you the professional and reliable service you deserve. When it's time to buy or sell a home in South Jersey or Philadelphia, contact Ann Coons, the only name you need to know in real estate. You can call Ancoons today at 856-795-4709. Again, that's 856-795-4709 or learn more on the web at
0: www.ankoonsrealestate.com. Are you looking for a lifeline? Verizon New Jersey Shares Communications Lifeline is a statewide nonprofit that provides assistance to individuals and families living in New Jersey who are in need of temporary help in paying their communication and energy bills. Want to know how to apply? All you need to do is call Verizon New Jersey Shares at 1-888-337-3339 or visit on the web at www.njshares.org. It's quick and easy to sign up, but remember, you must be a Verizon Residential Landline customer to apply for eligible programs. That's Verizon New Jersey Shares. Keep the lines of communication open for you and your family.